Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. This is The Guardian. Before we begin, just a quick warning. In this episode, we are talking about a hangman and his activities. So there are descriptions that some listeners may find unsettling. So here is this guy with the absolute worst job on the government books. And he gets stressed every day. And he takes the shame of his profession. He takes the taunting of children because of his disfigurement. And nothing really stops him from going to work and still trying to be the best employee that he can be. Hi, I'm Paul Daly. I'm an author and journalist. Welcome to Book It In, a show about the big ideas behind great books. My guest today is Rachel Franks. Rachel Franks is an educator and librarian who has written a book called An Uncommon Hangman, which is the biography of Robert Howard. Better known as Nosy Bob, he worked as a hangman for 26 years. This made him the longest-serving executioner in New South Wales. Bob Howard, or Nosy Bob, had a job that was already incredibly stigmatising. You know, people wanted justice carried out and... For the most part, until a certain point, they supported hanging, but they didn't want to know the person who did it. And the person who did it was socially ostracised. Add to that this guy's appearance. He's quite a phantomic looking guy, no nose, very tall, in a black suit and sometimes a tall hat. He's creepy. And that adds to the weird aura about the guy. So reading this book, I was absolutely hooked on the character, but also utterly repulsed by him. He's a really difficult character to like, but I found at times that I was kind of sympathising for him, for his social situation, and that made me really uncomfortable. I wanted to know why Rachel had chosen to write about this guy and what it was like to live him. Rachel, you've written a history of Robert Howard. He worked as a hangman for 26 years in New South Wales between 1876 and 1904. He hanged 61 men and one woman in gallows throughout New South Wales. So it's one life told through 62 deaths. Um, Rachel, congratulations. It's a wonderful piece of research and writing. Um, I found this book really compelling and haunting on a human level. 
How did you first come across him? Where, where did you meet him? I met him in a reading room at the State Library of New South Wales. So I was actually doing research on how women were treated by the Colonial Press Corps, whether they were victims or villains at the centre of those really big headline criminal cases. And this guy keeps popping up because he's so dominant over the late 19th century and there are all these really terrible headlines about, you know, bungling another hanging and botched again. And that guy was Robert Howard, or Nosy Bob as he'd come to be called. Tell me, Rachel, how did he earn this moniker? Well, like all good Australian nicknames, it doesn't necessarily mean that he was snooping and always nosing across the back fence. He actually had no nose. So he loses his nose after he's emigrated out from England and he's a cab driver and he really is very successful. And then he loses his nose. You've suggested throughout the book that he might have well had syphilis, as saddle nose, as you call it, is a symptom of advanced infection. Did anything sort of beyond the symptoms suggest that to you? Was there any historical suggestion of that? The most commonly told story about Nosy Bob is that one of his horses for his cab threw a hissy fit one day and clipped him across the face and that's how he lost his nose. But all of the illustrations that we have of Robert Howard show a really neat, almost surgical removal. And the idea that a horse could be so precise, really, it makes no sense. So I started looking at what else could have done that and I thought, it looks like disease when I took it to um, some medical historians. And as soon as they saw those illustrations, they didn't even hesitate. And syphilis seemed to be the only way that he could have lost his nose. So he had his nose when he was a cab driver, but not by the time he was a hangman. That's right. Yeah. And then he is suddenly less successful. There's this terrific line in one newspaper report, he was an Adonis, according to the horsey crowd. So I don't know if that means that he really was the Hugh Jackman of colonial <laughs> cabmen or if that's some sort of dodgy backhander. But either way, he certainly wasn't as attractive as he was once he was disfigured and all the middle-class women who had called on his services for so long suddenly no longer wanted to ride with him and he needed to start looking at other ways to support his family. And, and I imagine he wasn't being inundated with job offers. No, he tried to pick up his fallen cab trade and we see this quite a bit in his personal records or certainly the records that surround his his family in that he's working as a labourer. Sometimes he'll specify that he's a brickies labourer but he couldn't get enough work and the colonial hangman, even the assistant's position it was over £100 a year and it's stable income. And once you get into the top job, it's £156, which is certainly far above what he could have earned as a brickie. You describe Howard in many ways. You say he's disingenuous and cunning, but also generous and kind. As a reader, I can't quite like him, though I can at times feel some sympathy for him. 
um, which kind of disturbed me, <laughs> I yeah. must say. But I'm totally sucked into reading about him. Rachel, how was it to spend so much time as a writer thinking about and researching and living with Howard? So I've spent about eight years with him to date, so it's quite a long-term relationship. And I thought, having dabbled with other hangmen, that he was going to be a thug like all the others. My narrative of them was quite disrupted by these glimpses of him being human and generous and having a pet dog and kind of being, apart from his job title, the guy down the road almost that you could go and ask for a favour of or you would just sort of stop and chat to him in the street. So I actually became quite bonded to Howard and grew to draw on his resilience. So here is this guy with the absolute worst job on the government books and he gets stressed every day and he takes the shame of his profession, he takes the taunting of children because of his disfigurement and nothing really stops him from going to work and still trying to be the best employee that he can be. But then the more clinical researcher within me kept coming back to the fact that he had agency in that. By humanising him, am I being fair? Am I implicitly endorsing the death penalty, which I did not want to do? I think that it is the worst punishment on any government's books and I think we need to be quite open about that. So it became a bit of an internal argument every day. One of the interesting things that he does say in an interview, about 20 years in, he says that he knew once he did the first hanging, he had to stick with it, that there would be no neat exit point and he wouldn't be able to just go back into a more civil society and Mm. go back to labouring or move into retail or do anything else. He says some contradictory things and I can't avoid his flaws But he knew what he was doing and what he was signing up for, this almost this pact with the devil rather than a pact with the sheriff. But also the more I grew to certainly respect some of his ethical framework, even though it's quite different to my own around the death penalty, the fact that he tried to add this layer of dignity to it and at the end of each day he was wanting to get paid to support his children. So he's a widower shortly after he he goes into the trade and, you know, he has six children, some of whom are really quite young. He's trying to navigate his own path and still be a good neighbour and a good parent. So I did come to like him a lot and then that brings a new awkwardness. You know, what am I doing picturing myself in a pub having a drink with the hangman? You know, what would that be like? And it's still 
it's still a quiet discomfort. It can be quite difficult to explain, but when I look at some of the other people who did this work and really just added another layer of violence to what is essentially an act of state violence, you know, judicial killing, there's no way to soften that as a policy. But I think that his efforts to mitigate that a little bit or not at least amplify it makes him better than his peers technically and emotionally, the way he invests in it. It's tricky. I don't think he is all bad, but I certainly can't say he's all good. You write that Howard's biography is also the story of Australia, about who we are and who we wanted to be. Um, What did you learn about, for example, the treatment of Aboriginal people in the criminal justice system through your research into this period? Oh, just so much to be ashamed of. And I think that part of the problem was we have this And we still do it now. So we talk about the justice system as if those two terms, justice and system, can fit naturally together and they just don't. So justice, it's a legal concept, sure, but it's also a moral and very personal concept. And our ideas of justice change over time, but It's fast and the speed with which colonial justice was deployed was absolutely terrifying for me. I mean, you look at an average case, if you follow something in the papers now, I mean, a good fraud trial can last six, eight, 12 weeks. Colonial Sydney, a capital case, can be done in a day and The investigative processes in the lead-up to that were not as sophisticated as we would take for granted now. Lawyers had different levels of investment and so you see over and over again Indigenous people being inflicted with this system that was transported out from England and so completely different to how they would, you know, investigate their own offences and punish those offences. And we see it with poor people and, of course, with women. Even identity checks are not carried out. So you're, you're relying on someone saying, that man from over there did this thing and despite all sorts of evidence to the contrary or at least very weak evidence at best, Um, people going to prison and people going to the gallows. Um, How many Aboriginal people did he hang? Five out of the 62. So that's disproportionate? I would say so, and certainly I've tried to highlight in the book how similar offences were treated differently if you were black or if you were white. And a lot of people say, oh, you know, it's a product of its time, we didn't know any better. And one of the things that I've tried to highlight in the book is that actually we did know. 
and when people who had an opportunity to offer mercy to an Indigenous man, for example, and didn't, the outcry for that was actually encouraging is the wrong word, but I think it offers some comfort for people who are trying to carry the burden of our history that not everybody was so quick to just discard people because they were different. And what does the story tell us about women in the criminal justice system at the, at the time? Well, spoiler alert, women were not treated particularly well. And even if they were victims, you know, there was this idea that what is a good victim? You know, so you had to be proven innocent or a victim of crime by the press as well as the court system. Even girls are put on the stand. Yeah. So sometimes children as young as 10 are being asked to testify in a rape trial of which they are the centre of that trial. And something that shocked me quite a lot and um, I said, oh, that's wrong. No, no, this press report is inaccurate. So go down another rabbit hole and no, no, we did that. We allowed people charged with rape to interrogate and cross-examine their victims, even if they were children. Until pretty recently. Yeah. So some of the things that I found particularly difficult to grapple with was how slow change was. And if we go back to this idea of justice and what we see that as and what we believe it to be, people are often sort of charged with, oh, you don't like change or, oh, change is very hard. But I think that instinctively we are very good at change when it comes to this and we see things in a system that's wrong but then actually getting the complex machinery of that system to keep pace with us, that's where the problems start. Bob Howard hanged one woman, uh, Louisa Collins. Um, can you tell us a little about her and her execution, including something special that the hangman composed for her? Oh, yes, dear old Louisa. So she is still quite a controversial figure. So she's charged with murdering not one but two husbands, but it's not necessarily that unusual in colonial Sydney. But there was a real fear of women taking matters into their own hands in an age before no-fault divorce. How do you get rid of a husband? Poison. And she also comes to symbolise the burden of her sex in 19th century Australia. So women want to work and do things and go out and vote. And there comes this idea around Louisa of, well, all right then, if you want equal rights, equal rights means that you will hang if you murder as well. And so there was this absolute pursuit of her. And there's this really quite powerful document out at the State Archives 
and it's her own petition for mercy. And it's marked urgent because, yes, she is pleading for her life, not just for her but for her children. And it's only a couple of days before she's actually executed. And it was the only woman that Nosey hanged. And I do wonder how he would have felt about that. But there is this kind of... um, odd little snippet that for a man that we don't think could read or write, certainly not write more than his name, but was certainly very smart. So it's said that as he took her from the condemned cell and out to the gallows at Darlinghurst, that he had crafted a little poem for her. My pretty Louise, step on the trapeze and I'll let you down with the greatest of ease. But of course he doesn't and he had misjudged the drop. So there are two ways that you can bungle a hanging if the length of the rope is wrong. You can strangle somebody, which is considered the worst thing to do, or you can nearly take their head off or in some cases completely take their head off. And for Louisa it was a near decapitation. So for her it was instant, but for everybody there it was absolutely horrifying. Rachel, to do this book you had to research intensively what hanging involved, you know, the science of hanging, the drop, the length of rope, the prisoner's weight, the thickness of rope, etc. Can you tell us what it was that Bob Howard actually had to do and what the science involved? So the science of hanging is possibly the most macabre aspect of the book because it shows how clinical we were. Everything is documented. And there's a lot of work around the rope. Manila is always preferred and how it would be treated and the knot or later on how you would have... um, a metal eye and you would just slip the rope through for a smoother action. And everything was so point form detailed and clinical. They even have um, handouts almost, you know, with descriptions of who would do what and when and how the, the rope would be fitted, you know, around the neck, snug on the left side of the neck, please. And just the process around killing somebody and how deliberate that is. And of course, all the lead up, you know, there's days of preparation work, stretching the rope so that it doesn't coil, making it soft so that it won't tear somebody's skin. Because if you can break a neck neatly, that is always the preferred outcome. It's, you know, a good day for the person being hanged. It's certainly good for authorities. They want nice, neat demonstrations of power. And so they don't want stuff to go wrong. It's the abolitionists and the press corps who don't want it to go wrong either, but are super quick to leverage it when it does. I wanted to ask you about that, all the press surrounding hangings, um, they were really treated as a as an event as well as the dispatch of justice in the end. And 
So journalists would come and watch them and then they would write these florid accounts of, yeah. of, of what happened. Some of the accounts are just bonkers. You know, you have this almost formula. So there's this description of the weather and the traffic and the crowds and who comes in. And this becomes almost more elaborate over time. So even though hangings are fewer than they were by the time of Nosey's day, because we decided to become slightly more civilised and dispense with public hangings in the 1850s, we couldn't quite come up to full civility and abandon them altogether. But overnight, the way people understood this ultimate punishment was through the press corps. So suddenly these narratives are vitally important. And, there, and there's quite some commentary on his performance, as, it, as yeah. it were, and, you know, whether the hanging went to plan or whether it was botched and then there would be big implications for a botched hanging too. Mm. And the idea that the common hangman, as they were usually called, was often this just anonymised soldier of the sheriff and suddenly we're talking about what the hangman is wearing. And there is Robert Howard in his well-fitting black suit and his his offsider was wearing the garb of a prison warder. You know, you have all these odd details that colour in, if you like, a hanging. And, of course, even when he doesn't botch it, some of the press corps was so determined and so fierce in their fight for abolition, they would write a damning headline anyway, you know, another bungle. And even though I was able to prove that he was technically better than most other hangmen, not just in Australia but across the empire, his statistics, um, that's probably a bit vulgar to want to put them into a pie chart, but if you did that, he would come up looking pretty good. But everybody's criticising him and it took me a while to work out that he was being leveraged by people who were working to abolish the death penalty. So here you have this guy who looks monstrous and he is representing this inhuman system, it's so much easier to stare him down, to blame him. Yeah, he's a gift to the opponents, yeah, isn't he? Yeah, he sure is, than to try and change this really complicated framework of crime and punishment in colonial New South Wales. I also got quite a sense of a man who himself was media savvy, to be honest. He seemed very conscious of his public image. And I was quite taken aback about this sort of dissociative way almost that he talks about personal responsibility. Could you please read what he told the great journalist J.F. Archibald from the Bulletin in 1880 about his involvement in the hangings that he was carrying out? Yeah, this was one of the moments when I said, oh, mate, <laughs> really, really? Come on. So he's talking to Archibald and he's talking about an upcoming double hanging, a big event at Darlinghurst, and he's trying to distance himself for himself, for his children, but it just doesn't work. So he tells Archibald, and Archibald takes him seriously enough to put it into print, do you know, sir, that I never put a rope round a man's neck in my life? I never pulled a bolt either. I've a man do it for me. 
I stand there, do you see, and I pulls his cap over his face and I walks round him to see that the knot's nice and comfortable. Then I looks at the sheriff to catch the wink of his eye and then I tips the wink to my mate and he pulls the bolt and lets the man down. It's not a fact that I ever hung a man. Never, sir. Never. Hmm. It's tough to believe. It is, and there is evidence that he did. But there's this psychological game around who we blame. And that's one of the things that I've tried to draw out in the book is that one of the modern-day arguments against capital punishment is the state is acting on behalf of everyone when they carry out an execution by whatever method. And so if we aren't fighting that system, we are endorsing it or implicitly allowing it in some way. And so in colonial New South Wales, the blame circle is extraordinary. You know, the judge is blaming the jury. Well, they came back with the verdict. The jury has the lawyers to blame. The judge is also able to blame Parliament. Well, that's the law. And Nosey also says, I only do with a rope what judges do with their tongues. It's this really odd argument of how it's not my fault when it's really clear that it's everyone's fault to a certain extent. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Rachel, you've written a really fine historical biography on, on Howard, I think, but I'm wondering, given your interest in crime fiction, whether you instead ever actually contemplated writing a novel about him, especially given that as a novelist you can take far greater licence when it comes to interrogating an internal life of, of somebody who may have actually lived. It was sometimes quite tempting, especially when there were gaps in the historical record. It's like, oh, I just think this might have happened that way. And I started speculating and I had to be quite careful because I didn't want to just superimpose my own feelings towards this uh, this character. And once I'd committed to doing the history of it, I didn't want to muddy those waters. I didn't want to fabricate anything. And so if I'm unsure, if I have a theory, the syphilis, for example, I mean, I'm fairly certain, but without any historical evidence that I can point a reader to, I'm fairly open and say, look, this is what it is and this is why, but I cannot prove this 100%. I will offer the different 
theories that were available at the day and that have been developed since and present my case and try and do it in a way that brings him to life. And and you've done that. Um, Did you become more sort of vociferously opposed to the death penalty as your research and writing progressed or, or was that, you know, a hardline starting point for you? I was very opposed to it, but I had moments when I was working on the book where I had lost my outrage and I thought, how do I, how do I write this up so that it's not an advertisement for the death penalty? And that's why I went into so much detail about why it's wrong, even this, you know, ridiculous notion of a clean hanging. Nothing is instant. We say an instant death to pacify ourselves. Um, Some hangings are quicker than others. I'll give the science that. But they are all inhumane. And so I was trying to balance how much detail So it was always how much detail about the crime that I didn't want to just present this vengeful state, you know, diddly-bopping about and, oh, we'll hang that person today and we'll hang that person on Tuesday next week. You know, I wanted to convey that the people who were doing it, even if they're enthusiastic supporters of the death penalty, acknowledged that it was serious. I didn't want to disrespect the victims by making it some salacious true crime written in six hours over a couple of beers on a Saturday. You know, I wanted it to come across as thoughtful but without lecturing people. You know, I didn't want to just overtly say, and the death penalty is wrong because I think I think the evidence is actually really good to say that it's wrong. Yeah, I don't I don't think having read this book you could come to any other conclusion <laughs> about capital punishment to be honest and I and I think the great virtue of it is that you've succeeded because it's not didactic or 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 preachy. Um he had a large family, he had six kids. So I'm guessing there's descendants somewhere and I'm just wondering if in your journey with him you came across them and and spoke to any of them. I spoke to his great-great-granddaughter, Sharon, who is a delight because I tracked her down and then I was umming and ahhing a little bit about, hmm, do I contact her or not? And speaking to other biographers, there's sort of this real debate around whether you contact the family, how involved might they want to be, might they want to censor anything that you could find while doing this research. And I also had the extra issue of it's not like I was researching somebody who had won a bravery award or done this fabulous thing. It was like, hi, I'm nobody. I would like to talk about your executioner, please. And she actually took it in quite good humour and she'd done an extraordinary amount of family research and her daughter had as well, so I got a couple of generations of insight into him. She'd gone off looking for a convict 
and she'd found this hangman instead. And she was quite interested in it and she was very, very kind when I um, sent her a copy of the book and she said, do people like the book? And I said, well, I've had some good feedback. I'm so grateful for that. And she said, no, no, but don't they review books? And so I printed off a couple, popped them in the post to her, and she sent me a text message saying, um, finally, I think Howard, our Bob, is getting the press that he deserves. So that was, for me, for all the ups and downs that I had during the book and thinking, this is a great story, am I the right person to tell it, um, this is really hard, why am I doing this? All of those questions, which I think are fairly common to anybody who tries to write anything, um, that made it all worthwhile. Just one last question, Rachel. Um, I just want you to think about your readers for for a moment and, and I've seen some feedback from them that people have responded really really positively to this book, readers have, I, I, I mean. Um, what do you think it says about them that they can engage with a story like this, that they want to read about something like this and they want to get to know someone like Bob Howard? I think we have such a heavy history in Australia and it's very easy to bristle against that and to feel the weight of that. There's so many dreadful things that we are the beneficiaries of. You know, the way we've treated First Nations people, the way we've treated the poor women. And I think that this book gives us a little bit of insight in that some things were especially heinous, but there were always voices fighting the good fight and prepared to stand up and say this is wrong. And not necessarily privileged, white, highly educated voices. Some of the people that I came across and I've included in this book are complete fragments of the historical record. They may have just signed a petition for mercy with a little X mark, but it counts and it all counts. And I think that we can read a book like this and Yes, there's the idea that we're learning about crime and punishment and there are lots of different reasons why people read true crime, but we're also getting, I hope, the context about that and we can be more aware and more informed. And one of the things as someone who's been researching crime for a really long time is the only constants about this is that it is timeless and it is universal. And our reactions to crime and punishment make us deeply human and make us think about what it is to be human. And we might not have all the answers. Indeed, we've proven over and over that we have very few of the answers. But if we can contribute to conversations about this and we can draw on our histories to have more informed conversations, then 
I think that's a good thing. And as a researcher and historian, maybe I've done my bit. You've done your bit. It's a great conversation starter and it's a terrific work of history and a great piece of writing. Um, Thanks very much, Rachel, for talking to us today. Thank you. I'm really grateful to have this conversation and talk to you about it. Thank you. Rachel Franks is the author of An Uncommon Hangman, The Life and Deaths of Robert Nosy Bob Howard, published by New South. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd like to recommend another one, and that is Lucy Clark talking to Catherine Heyman on fury, trauma and personal transformation. It's a terrific episode. This episode was produced by Alison Chan, mixed by Daniel Simo. The series producer is Jane Lee. Molly Glassie is the executive producer. And I'm Paul Daly. Thanks for listening to Book It In. Remember to subscribe and follow us on your favourite podcast app. And tell your friends about us. It really helps us to find more listeners. We'll be back with another new episode next week. Until then, happy reading.